Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we will be hearing from Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley. Dr. Bradley is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. She delivers lectures around the country and oversees curriculum development and evaluation for economics courses. Previously, Dr. Bradley served as the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work and Economics, where she continued research toward a systematic biblical theology of economic freedom. In addition to her work with the Fund for American Studies, she's a professor of economics at the Institute for World Politics and Grove City College. She is a visiting professor at George Mason University and has previously taught at Georgetown University and Charles University in Prague. Dr. Bradley serves on the James Madison University Executive Advisory Board and is the president-elect for the Society of the Development of Austrian Economics. Dr. Bradley, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. I'm sad we can't be together in person, but I think that this is gonna be great. Um, and I'm gonna make sure to have a little timer here so I don't talk the whole time. Um, so we'll make sure to take as many questions um, as we possibly can at the end. So what I wanna talk about today is this kind of interesting phenomenon um, that seems to be going on in American politics, which is the rise of um, socialism, more specifically the rise of what we call democratic socialism. And kind of it begs the question, are we all getting more radical? Um, that's never happened before. How do we think about uh, this movement and who it is, uh, who finds it compelling and what it promises versus what it can deliver. And so that's what I want to talk about. It's just kind of the trends that are going on, but I want to get down to the economics of it. Of course, that's what I do because I'm an economist. So um, I think it's very important for us as we wade through these messy issues that are very ideological and I would say also very emotional. Uh, that we need to make sure we're thinking like economists. And if you've taken my class at IWP, you know I say that. We've got to put our economic thinking caps on to really get to the truth, right? Because what we want is a world where everybody has the same opportunity to use their creative abilities as best as they can to make positive contributions to the public good and to the common good. That's That's what we want. What we know about economics is that in market economies, people seem to be more enabled to do that. Um, and, and it's the way that resource allocation works. So we'll talk about that. So the way that economists come to, come to these questions of political economy is hopefully not in an ideological way. Of course, we're all human beings, but what we wanna do is cut through that ideology and really say, okay, what type of economic system adjoined to what type of political and legal system is gonna provide the most prosperity for the most people? That's the quest. 
So we kind of take that as a given, right? So I think there's a couple of things going on that, that help us understand the rise of democratic socialism or socialism in the United States. Those two things are different. I'll talk about them in a minute. But I think one thing um, that's very real is that uh, we either um, tend to look at the past with a romantic view of, of what happened, or we just weren't alive. And so we, we don't remember the past. We've read it perhaps in a textbook. Um, and so that's not the same as living it. And so I can tell you that uh, when I was in high school, I went on a high school trip and we visited five countries. One of those countries was Russia. And certainly uh, that changed my perspective on the world as a young student being able to go there and see what it was like. And of course, this was uh, right before the wall fell. So it was the Soviet Union. And so things, you know, having that lived experience really changed my perspective. And of course, if you weren't alive, you didn't have that lived experience. But I think we need to be careful about um, those who are pushing for a return to socialism, but promising that it will be somehow a kinder, gentler socialism this time. The question is, is that even possible? So A, we need to remember the past. And the pictures you see here are of um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was a peaceful revolution that, that you know, uh, resulted in the end of the Soviet communist experiment, which was the world's largest and longest experiment with central economic planning, which is what socialism is. And so uh, keep in mind that that wall, remember um, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan at the time, said to Mr. Gorbachev in 1987, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is a wall erected by a country to keep people in. So you have to think about what level of human immiseration is going on inside a country such that it would be so bad that you would wanna leave but the government needs to keep you there. And the only way to do that is through force and through walls. And so, you know, that alone should tell us something about what, you know, kind of central economic planning, what it results in and what type of life it gives us. So I think one part of our problem today is that we don't accurately have an understanding of the past because we've lived socialism globally before and we're continuing to live it in certain countries. So here's um, a poll that was taken in 2014 and it shows that college age millennials are the group that seems to be more favorable on net towards socialism. And uh, you know, I think again, that's part of not living through the cold war, not living through the fear um, of what the Soviet Union might become and the threats that uh, that it, it posed to the world. And so that, that's perhaps one part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is that we have American politicians today that are uh, normalizing the word socialism. Um, uh, and if it's here, I have an example of AOC and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, of course, was a demo, uh, uh, presidential candidate um, as a Democrat, and he proudly boasts that he's a democratic socialist. And so, you know, kind of understanding what those words mean, I think is really important for us. So one, we don't remember the past in, in I think the right way accurately. Number two, I think we have um, new marketing campaigns that are, that are surrounding kind of this new, again, kinder, gentler version of socialism. And somehow we won't repeat the authoritarian mistakes of the past. And so this is a newer poll uh, that was published by Victims of Communism Organization. And it says that 70% of millennials are say that they're likely to vote for a socialist. Now, 
And that doesn't mean they will, but 70% saying it's likely, um, I think that's a troubling statistic because again, I, you know, what are these, um, this demographic, what are they asking for when they're asking for socialism? Do they, do they, do we really fully understand what that term means, what the implications of an economic system that's run as a socialist system will be for ordinary people? And of course, that's who we need to be worried about, right? Uh, we're not worried about the elites. We're worried about how ordinary people will fare under alternative institutional arrangements. I think we have another thing that's going on here. I alluded to it at the beginning with, or just a moment ago with AOC and Sanders. I think we have a cool factor. So we have this notion that somehow socialism is cool because it's it's new and improved. It's socialism 2.0. So you can go to a trendy store like Urban Outfitters and you can get a t-shirt with a picture of Che Guevara on the front. And again, if you don't uh, properly understand who he was and what he did, then you don't understand that he was a brutal dictator. And so somehow it seems compelling to wear his face on a t-shirt as again, the new vision of some type of kinder, gentler socialism. I think the other thing that's going on here is you have people like Sanders who are saying we need to be more like the Nordic countries in particular. He is famous for saying we should be more like Denmark and claiming that the Nordic model is a model of democratic socialism. Now, when we look at the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, um, Denmark, what, what you see are not socialist countries. Uh, and where you see countries that are run um, with market economies. They're run by ordinary people being able to start firms and start businesses. And they have a lot of economic freedom and I'll get to that in a few moments. So I think it's um, a misapplication of the term to call Sweden or Finland um, socialist or even democratic socialist states. Rather, they're free market economies with lots of government redistribution. And those are two different things. Again, if we don't understand the economic language that's being used here, I'm not sure we can really, again, get to the truth. Because again, the big question of political economy, what type of economic system is best for the most people, right? And when we say best, we need leads to prosperity, income, growth, and wealth accumulation. So here's kind of some of the banter. This is obviously just one very small example, but when you hear Sanders and AOC um, and others, there are others, um, talk about the democratic type of socialism, here is what their um, complaints are. Their complaints are about capitalism per se, that capitalism leads to um, less egalitarianism, it leads to favoritism of the rich, it exacerbates greed, and it's built on corruption. So these are some of the things, the complaints that you hear that are levied from Democrat, American democratic socialists against the capitalist system. So here's just some um, comments that you see. Um, Bernie Sanders talks about the level of inequality, income inequality that is in America, and he says it's grotesque and it's immoral. He said, goes on to say it's bad economics. He says it's not sustainable and it's not what the United States is supposed to be about. So his view of capitalism is that capitalism uh, on its own principles will necessarily lead to inappropriate income inequality that marginalizes the poor. And I would say to you um, that we should take these comments seriously because if they're accurate, then we need to respond to them accordingly, right? But the, the beauty of economics is it gives us a non-ideological way to respond to that comment. Is it true or is it false? We can actually go to the data and see if he's right. Is the level of income inequality in the United States immoral? Is it grotesque? 
you know, how do we unpack those terms uh, with the right analytical framework so that we can get to the truth? And that's what we need to do. Uh, here you have kind of a Twitter conversation uh, between uh, someone and AOC, and this person says, what precisely is the correct level of income inequality for you, AOC? Is there a distribution you are shooting for? Should everybody be equal? I think that's a fair question. Uh, are we shooting for absolute income inequality where everybody has the exact same income? Most serious people aren't advocating for that, but you do hear uh, claims for a universal basic income, which would try to accomplish something similar to that. Uh, and she responds, and some says somewhere between, quote, teachers shouldn't have to sell their own blood to pay the rent and, quote, billionaires with helipads and full-time workers on food stamps shouldn't exist in the same society. So again, the narrative is that capitalism leads to gross income inequality. It favors the rich. It allows the rich to get richer at the expense of the poor and that that's a problem. Here's another comment from Sanders, which I think encapsulates his understanding of how a market economy works. And again, we can just take him at his word. We don't have to um, put words in his mouth at all. We can take him at what he says and unpack it and, and try to understand if he's right or not. That's all we're doing here. So again, the beauty of economics, it's not ideological. Uh, we're looking at cost benefit analysis to try to understand what is the best among the range of alternatives. So here's a quote from Sanders, you don't necessarily need a choice of 23 underarm spray deodorants or of 18 different pairs of sneakers when children are hungry in this country. And I, I really would encourage us to pause when we think about that. Here is what this statement is suggesting. When you go into your local grocery store, when you shop at you know Walmart online or Target or whatever it is, and you go to choose an underarm deodorant, his claim here is that there's too many choices. Why do we need 23 different options for underarm deodorant? Why do we need 18 different types of pairs of sneakers? His presumption is that lots of choices in underarm deodorants limit the choices for other people. So that's the claim that's being made here. Because those of us who are, to him, you know, not in the bottom of the income distribution, we have all these choices which seems wonderful for us, right? But his claim is that just the fact that there's 23 underarm deodorants in the aisle of your local Harris Teeter necessarily means that people who are poor, people who are at the bottom of the income distribution have fewer choices because you're wasting those resources. Why don't we just, I mean, one could go further and say, well, maybe we just need one choice of underarm deodorant and then we would free up resources to give to people who are in need. So that's the claim, right? That's the claim. That's what he's reacting against. And all we have to do as economists to say, is that correct? Does a capitalist or market-based system give more to the wealthy and leave less for everybody else? So I, to, to answer that question, I'm gonna ask another question. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the fundamental assumptions of economics, because I think we, anytime we're advocating for one system over another, we really have to do that. What are the, what are the fundamental realities, the truths that we have to start with before we build any system um, and expect it to work. So, you know, the question is, and this is what Sanders is alluding to, is income a zero-sum game, right? So this woman, this is from the Occupy Wall Street movement. This woman has a handmade sign that says, one day the poor will have nothing left to eat but the rich, right? So it means that as the rich continue in their income growth, 
continue in their capital and wealth accumulation, they leave less for everyone else, right? So what is the assumption there? The assumption is that the world, the economy is zero sum. It's what we call a fixed pie. And the amount of wealth that's available to everyone is fixed, meaning it can't be changed. If that's true, then who has control of the pie, the economic pie, really matters a lot, right? But, but in fact, and of course there are economies that are very zero sum, and those are the very economies that don't have well-functioning markets, that don't have a lot of economic freedom. So trade has to happen no matter what. But trade isn't scalable if you don't have a market-based system to support it. So I think the problem here is that there are places in the world that operate in a zero-sum fashion. And what that means is what she just said on that sign and kind of what in Sanders implied in the slide before, which is that as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. This is absolutely true if you live in a place like Afghanistan, which has very little economic freedom. It's absolutely true if you live in a place like modern-day Venezuela. The elites are protected. Everybody else has to fend for themselves. And the interesting case of Venezuela is an economy that 35, 40 years ago used to be a thriving, robust democracy with lots of economic freedom. It's a place you would vacation. Now it is a place, again, where the citizens are trying desperately to leave. Right now in Venezuela, if you end up in a hospital, they are doing surgeries by flashlight because there is no electricity, right? Because the market system that supported that wealth creation has been destroyed by authoritarianism and by central economic planning. So there's, a, I guess the other thing that I would say to all of this, are we becoming more radical? Is democratic socialism a good idea? Um, we have to say, you know, there's a path towards prosperity and a path away from it. We have to figure out what the path towards prosperity is, right? And we can't do that without respecting these economic realities. So I wanna talk really briefly about what those are. Um, and again, you know, if you go into a physics class on the first day uh, and they, they talk to you about gravity, you don't really dispute it, I, I suspect, right? You just say, okay, gravity, it's a constraint. I have to face it. I have to deal with it. If I don't deal with it, harm will befall me. Same thing with economics. Economics presents realities that we have to respect, both realities of the world and the realities of human nature. If we don't start and build an economic system on those realities, we will go wrong, right? So there's, you can't just do anything you want. There's a right way. Like I said, there's a path to prosperity and there's a path that leads you away from prosperity. So what are those economic realities? And again, if you've taken my course, you know we talk about this a lot because it's so essential for thinking through policies that are either gonna be effective or ineffective, thinking about comparative economic systems. The first most important uh, reality in all of economics is that we live in a world of scarcity. Resources are scarce. Resources have multiple and competing ends. And so we have to choose. If you ever took a micro class in undergrad or in high school, the first thing you learned was that there's no such thing as a free lunch. There is no free. In fact, economists try not to use the word free. There are things that can have a zero price, but nothing is free. You will always pay. You'll pay in a trade-off. You'll pay in the opportunity cost of your time. So we have to figure out, you know, the, the big quest of humankind has been to figure out how do we create abundance out of scarcity? How do we lower our trade-offs? How do we reduce our opportunity costs and have more wealth? And it's only been recent in human history, the last 250 years or so, that we've been able to do it in a scalable and in a global way. 
but we must respect the notion that there's no free lunch. So anytime any government official, whether they're speaking from as a democratic socialist or as somebody who's claiming to be a capitalist or somebody claiming to be a communist, it doesn't matter, whoever they are, if they are selling something that sounds like it's free, your radar should go off because there is no free. We always pay in some form of cost. There's always another use or another end that those resources could be directed towards. Uh, another economic reality is that we respond to incentives. We are human beings. We do things with purpose. We use our reason to guide us. That doesn't mean we're always right. It doesn't mean our choices are always ethical. So we're not claiming any um, that, that some people are benevolent or altruistic all the time. In fact, if you decide to run an economic system on the premise that some people can be good all the time and we can trust those people with power, which is what I think the democratic socialists are advocating for, we're going to be disappointed because there's no one person that's good enough all the time to be trusted with power. And of course, the founders of the United States were well aware of the threat of power and the threat of tyranny. So people respond to incentives. So again, when you're thinking about what type of economic system is gonna best provide the most opportunities for the most people, we're going to have to figure out what type of incentives that economic system establishes for ordinary, ordinary people. Uh, Adam Smith understood this very well. Uh, so in his most famous work, um, The Wealth of Nations, what he was, you know, kind of, the ideas that kind of really reveal themselves in that work is that um, division of labor and specialization are the way that we become, we create wealth. But we need to trade with each other to specialize. So we can only divide the labor when we can trade with more and more people. So market economies are about peaceful cooperation, right? We have to figure out how to cooperate with strangers. And that's just not an easy thing to do. And Adam Smith knew that people were self-interested. He talked about self-love. We love ourselves first. And he understood that all of us are capable of being corrupted. We're capable of greed. We're capable of bad things. But we're also capable of lots of innovation and creativity. So for Smith and for those who have kind of come behind him intellectually, it's about the institutional arrangements. It's about what type of institutions in a given system are going to provide the incentives for ordinary people to wake up in the morning and think about solving problems, right? And in market economies, this is done through entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs discover newer, better ways of doing things. But Adam Smith understood, right? He understood the threat of power. And so these are the things that are always with us. So when we're, you know, um, whether we are getting more radical or not, I think the thing we always have to be worried about are these kind of fundamental realities and assumptions that economists make. So getting back to kind of American politics, the claims, I've already laid some of them out. We have too much stuff. Too few people have too much wealth. And there's this other claim that the middle class is going away, right? That we're losing the middle class. And of course, any economist would tell you that we always want a thriving middle class. Um, because it suggests something about income mobility. And income mobility, I would argue to you, is even more important of a, uh, a factor in a dynamic economy than income inequality is. Because income mobility suggests that you can start at one point with your income and that your income, you know, what we expect with time and experience and education, your income will grow over time. And so when we're looking at dynamic economies, we want to see a robust middle class because it suggests 
you know, when you're young and you have less experience, less education, you make less money, but over the time and the course of your life, as you gain experience, even if it's just time on the job, this is not suggesting everybody needs to go to graduate school and get a PhD or anything like that. But as we get better, right, as in Adam Smith's words, as we specialize more, our incomes go up. So here's what I want to show you, because I really am astounded by the fact that we just don't talk about this enough. I don't think it's it's out there in, in discussions in social media. I don't think it's uh, in the media in general. And so that I think this is a problem. So, you know, this claim, again, for people who are advocating for us to be more democratically socialist, if you will, one of the claims, again, richer getting richer, poorer getting poorer, or middle class is going away. So I want you to look at these graphs, if you will, with me. Um, if you look at the graph on the left, we're looking at middle class as a percent of U.S. households from 1971 to 2016. So the far left, 1967. And middle class means, as you know, the way the BLS defines it, is $35,000 to $100,000 a year. So that's a wide range. Of course, we could talk about that at another time. But that's how they've defined it. So if you're in that range, you're considered middle class, all right? So in 1967, 53% about of U.S. households um, were defined as middle class. In 2016, the far left blue bar is 42%. So you look at that and you say the middle class is shrinking, which begs the question, where are they going? And of course, the narrative of the democratic socialists is that they are getting poorer. So the middle class is shrinking because they are getting poorer while the rich, you know, the top 1%, um, they feast, right? And so that's that's kind of the narrative. Again, what do economists do? We go to the data, the data to see what it tells us. And here's, if you look at the, the graph on the right, here's what the data suggests. So the, we have the first graph repeated, right? So we're looking at the same years, 1967 to 2016. Look at the light blue bars, they're exactly the same. This is the middle class, but this, completes the picture. This is the full graph. The first story we told was only part of the story. We didn't tell you where everybody else was. So look in 1967, 38.7% of U.S. households lived on $35,000 a year or less. And 8.1, that's the dark blue, 8.1% uh, had more than $100,000. And this is adjusted for inflation, of course. So, okay, now you go all the way over to to the right-hand side of the graph, 2016, and what does it show us? That there's fewer people living at the bottom of the income distribution, 30.2% in 2016 versus 38.7% in 1967. So where are these households going? They're moving up. Look at that big difference in more than $100,000. In 1967, it's 8.1%. In 2016, it's 27.7%. So there's more high income households as a percentage of all households than there in 2016 than there were in 1967. So if you just look at that first graph, you get part of a picture that would lead you to conclude, wow, the middle class is shrinking. And I don't know where they're going, but if somebody told me they were getting poorer based on that, I would have no reason necessarily to dispute it. That's why we always have to look at the big picture. And here's the big picture. So people are getting richer. And again, this is adjusting for inflation. So we're accounting for price differentials and things like that. So I think this is a really important point about income mobility. In a market-based economy, and the United States is largely a market-based economy, people have the opportunity to grow their income. 
Now, there are things that stand to threaten that, and I think we need to be worried about that, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But in general, that's a good story, right? It could be better. Um, we could move faster, right? Um, so there are things that, and an economist, we're always thinking about relevant alternatives. So the relevant alternative is, let's get them moving up faster, right? And even higher income gains. And how do we do that? How do we think about enhancing productivity? And so that's the next point I want to talk about. When when people who claim the label democratic socialists, when they when they ask for better egalitarian, more egalitarian income outcome outcomes, I think what they're the point that's being missed there is we don't, as economists, just care about income. We care about what your income gets you, right? So we want to look at prices and how they've changed over time. This is a little. Um, a little kind of case study that my colleague at George Mason, Don Boudreau, did based on some other uh, academic research. But um, if you've ever watched this, the, the TV show, The Price is Right, I think The Price is Right debuted in 1974, perhaps. And uh, this stove that you see on the left is a picture of a stove that debuted on The Price is Right. And The Price is Right, of course, is a game show. And you have to guess the prices of different goods, household goods, usually. So this stove. Uh, in 1972, um, was about $395. So the, my my economist friend Don Boudreau said, "Okay, well, I want to go to to today's figures, and I want to find a comparable stove, and I want to figure out how much that stove costs today." So uh, he went and he found in the Home Depot online catalog this white stove top um, in this oven. And you know it's about the same. It doesn't have the 1970s racing stripe or mustard yellow, but it's about the same. It does the same stuff, right? And it's about $350. And you look at that and you say, wow, in 1972, it was, it was $395. And in 2020, it's only $350. So gosh, things have not income distribution. It's still fairly expensive to get the stove, but is it, right? So the thing that if you just look at nominal prices, what you miss and this is the key insight into Adam Smith about wealth creation is how have people's productivity changed? So what he did, what this economist did is he looked at average wages of manufacturing employees. So these are kind of like what we might call blue collar workers, manufacturing employees who are not supervisors. And he looked at their uh, income, their hourly wages in 1972, and they made about $3 an hour in 1972. So it took about 99 work hours in 1972 to get that yellow stove. Then he went and he looked up those same workers, uh, manufacturing laborers who are not supervisors in 2020. And he found that they made, it only takes about 17 work hours to get the stove, whereas it took almost 100 work hours in 1972. So what does that tell us? It tells us that income even doesn't show us the whole picture. What we want to know is the purchasing power of our labor. And in that time, those same workers have become much more productive. And being productive is what raises your purchasing power, right? So we're never just looking at income and we're never just looking at prices. We want to know what our income gets us and how, you know, kind of how prices changed in terms of the labor required to get them. So, you know, I think that the narrative that the democratic socialists would like us to believe, you know, and they tell a compelling story because it, many of them are very charismatic. 
in the way that they speak. I think the promises that they um, that they suggest that we can get um, sound very good on paper, right? A world where think about if you're a single mother, you're living in the inner city of Baltimore and you're struggling to take care of four kids. Life is not easy. Trade-offs are very difficult. Your child is sick. Maybe you can't afford to take a day off of work to stay home with them. So these are real trade-offs and real opportunity costs that our fellow human beings, our fellow Americans face. So I think that this is a real, you know, we need to take the democratic socialists seriously because that's why their, their message is compelling to people, right? If, if I'm that single mother and life is very difficult and you're promising me that you can guarantee me a basic income or guarantee me a higher minimum wage and guarantee me healthcare, guarantee that I'm not gonna have to repay my student loans, then life sounds like it's gonna get a lot better, right? So we need to take the claims of the democratic socialists seriously, but we need to counter their claims with sound economics and not vitriol um, and shrill ideological debate. And so this is where I actually think, um, I, you know, I'm worried about the our ability to do that. I think we're losing our civility. Uh, you know, I think no, no big problems can be solved by a Twitter war. Um, and I think the media kind of, uh, fans the flames um, of populism and ideology. And uh, I think that we need to kind of shift that conversation to be more compassionate, to address the, the real problems that real people have head on, not wave away their problems and pretend like they don't exist, but rather come up with a compelling counter narrative about the power of markets. Um, and so I think the democratic uh, socialists are wrong for a variety of reasons, but the most primary reason that they're incorrect is that democratic socialism is not functional. It doesn't work. Uh, and it's because of the very things that make markets and income growth functional are not present in a socialist society. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what I do want to share with you, and of course, if you've taken my class, you've seen this graph because it is my favorite graph. But basically what this is showing us is how um, GDP, gross domestic product, which is just a way that economists um, kind of benchmark income. By the way, it's not really the best measure, but it's what we have, so we use it. I think it leaves a lot of questions open, but we use it. So this is global GDP over time. It's every country. It does not exclude outliers. It's the richest countries. It's the poorest countries. And what I want you to pay attention to is this orange kind of trend line, right? And we call this as economists, the hockey stick graph. This is the good news. The good news, I mean, the bad news was that for most of human history, people lived in a state of grinding poverty. And they lived in a zero sum world where the people who had the power plundered. Uh, there was no, you know, not, not a lot of scalable democracies, not a lot of scalable property rights regimes. Um, you were born into a station in life and you stayed there. If you were lucky to be born at the top, you lived better than others, but the richest people um, in 1500 don't live anything like what you and I live today. So, you know, the bad news is that it took us a long time in the course of human history to figure out how to create sustainable global wealth that is egalitarian in its consumption. That is the missing link. That's the narrative that's not on the table today is that the counter narrative to democratic socialism is that market economies provide egalitarian consumption possibilities, okay? In 1984, I believe the first cell phone was sold in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I believe it cost about $4,000 in, in 1984, which is a lot today, right? $10,000 or something. Um, 
And the richest person who could get that mobile phone, you know what that mobile phone could do? Very little, right? It could make calls, but you carried it around in a suitcase. And I believe the battery lasted for about a half an hour. So today, now the phone that you have isn't even comparable to that phone that was first invented in 1984. And the phone that you have today has destroyed the old phone. So the phones are just getting better and faster and more effective, right? And they are available to more people than ever. In 1984, only the wealthiest of the wealthy had some form of a mobile phone. Now, most people have access to a mobile phone, right? So this is what the egalitarian consumption that is provided by market-based economies gives us. While, look at this graph, it's also exciting. If you look at the slope, the slope is exactly, and the shape are exactly the same. While you are having exponential population growth. So we hear a lot today in the news, um, different people are suggesting that people are bad for the planet. By the way, that's not a new idea. That's an old idea, uh, but it's getting some more popularity, right? And so people are bad, if people are bad for the planet and people destroy the planet, then we need to control population somehow. And of course you see how that's gone for China very badly. It violates every kind of precondition of human rights and human dignity that we know of, but it's, it's, Casting that aside, it's just really bad policy, right? It's just really bad policy. And the reason that it's really bad policy is because people are in fact good for the planet. People are creators, but they need the right institutional environment to be able to unleash that creativity. What is that institutional environment? Economic freedom. So I'm a big fan of economic freedom. If you've taken my class, you know this very well. Uh, but if you haven't, I really think that this data is out there. There's many organizations that measure it. This really started with Milton Friedman in the 70s. He said, hey, we talk about prosperity a lot, let's measure it. And so he comes up, he and others come up with this index that empirically measures how free people are to engage in business, to buy and sell, et cetera, in their own countries. So we score countries on a scale from zero to 10. Zero is no economic freedom. 10 is a perfect score. Um, the United States is usually in the top 20. I think this year we're number six. Um, so that's a big increase from the year before. Um, and the things we measure are the soundness of the currency, the level and protection of property rights. Um, how heavy handed is the regulatory scheme? In other words, do you have to know people? Do you have to bribe people? Do you have to get a lot of licenses to operate a business? We look at the freedom to trade internationally and we look at the size of the state compared to the size of the economy. So when you take all that into consideration, it is only the countries that have economic freedom, which means they have capitalism. Capitalism, very simply put, is a system based on profit and loss. It's a decentralized way of allocating scarce resources versus socialism, which is functions only through bureaus, managers, and coercion. So in other words, how do you allocate resources in a socialist economy, which is a society with no economic freedom or very little? The people in power tell you what to do and they tell you how often to do it and they tell you what the prices are gonna be. Look at any society that has been run by socialism. This always leads to starvation, immiseration, right? Cues and lines. So look at Venezuela today. You get a ration card to go to the grocery store, you go on your day, you do what you're told, there's still no food on the shelves. I would suggest to you that even in a pandemic, like we're living in right now, that's not happening in the United States. You may go to the grocery store and they don't have toilet paper, but you know what you can bet on? Toilet paper will eventually be on those shelves. And the reason is because market economies 
are agile and they are nimble. So when entrepreneurs see, whoa, we need a lot more toilet paper than we needed before, everybody's spending time at home, so we need to shift from commercial toilet paper production to residential, market economies get on it. Why? Because they want the profit. They don't want to suffer the losses. So it's not that people in market economies are somehow better than people in socialist economies because people are always people. But when people have economic freedom, they get what Adam Smith was worried about. They get the right incentives to solve problems that other people have. So in this sense, finding the right economic system is a humanitarian endeavor in and of itself. This is just a chart that shows you the economic freedom data for the most recent index. And you can see here, uh, the United States is number six. Hong Kong and Singapore have been battling out the number one and number two position for some time. Uh, and these are important numbers because they show us these are the, the types of economies you see in the blue here are the types of economies that are run on markets, right? Now, we live in a mixed economy. The United States is not a pure capitalist system. There's government intervention in the economy in different ways, but it largely operates as a system of profit and loss. Where we don't have that, and I think where Americans should be concerned, and by the way, this is where the AOCs and the Sanders, I think, have very legitimate points. Um, and this is what I call the rise of cronyism. So in the United States, among other countries, so it's not, you know, we're not the only country with this problem, um, it pays, it can pay to, to play the game, right? So large corporations, well-connected individuals, they go to Washington, D.C., and they lobby for things that will benefit them at the exclusion or at the expense of other people. Remember what I said about capitalism. It operates on profits and losses. What do firms not want to endure? They don't want losses. So if you can go to Capitol Hill and you know engineer a political arrangement that's gonna insulate you from losses, whether it's limiting foreign competition, whether it's subsidies, whether it's tariffs, whether it's you know, kind of regulations on incoming businesses, whatever it may be, those things kind of slowly deteriorate the market economy because you're kind of, you're diminishing the profit and loss function, which serves to discipline entrepreneurs in a way that they do what consumers want. So, so I actually think in highly developed mixed economies, this is what we need to worry about. We need to worry about the prevalence of cronyism in the United States, we see that the Federal Register, which you know tracks all regulations, is growing. It's growing exponentially since the 1960s. So we need to get a handle on this. And I think the problem is that you have to pay to play the game. So the wealthy are the ones that can you know have the ability to manipulate the system, whereas the people you know at the bottom of the income distribution, small small entrepreneurs, they can't afford to hire a large you know lobbying firm to represent them and protect them. And so the problem is that I think cronyism leads to the worst type of zero-sum game. So positive-sum game societies can always be transformed into zero-sum or negative-sum societies. We always have to be vigilant, vigilant about the institutions of economic freedom. Um, and you know, this, this graph here just shows you what's going on. Again, this is not just a trend um, in the United States, but all OECD countries face this. As your economy gets wealthier, um, government spending as a percentage of GDP increases. So wealth seems to come with um, greater government spending. And I think part of that is based on our expectations about what we think government can do for us. Economics, not ideology, has to be our guide here, always.
economics has to be our guide about what is appropriate for the state to do and what is appropriate for the market to do. Uh, ideology just gets you into kind of fistfights, right? That don't go anywhere. Um, but what we see here is that as government spending as a percentage of GDP goes up, then the expected handouts go up. So the kind of environment that facilitates cronyism grows. And I think that's what we need to be worried about. And if, if you listen to AOC and Sanders, they've been very vocal um, against cronyism. And so I think that's a place where we should take them seriously and say, you know, as, as people who advocate for a market-based society and for economic freedom, we have to be people who advocate against this growth of government spending and against the environment of cronyism that comes with that. So we're changing the culture of politics. We're changing the culture of the way people approach doing business, right? Your first idea when you have a business idea shouldn't be, you know, I'm going to take this to my local state house and see what they can do for me. It should be, how am I going to serve my consumers with this new um, good or service that I'm coming up with? Uh, so, you know, to bottom line all of this stuff, I would say, um, you know, the tragedy of Venezuela is that it was once again a place that was rich, democratic, free, thriving, flourishing, and that has been eroded in a very short time. And it's been eroded because um, the impossible was attempted. Um, so uh, initially under Chavez, right, we all like the promise of free stuff. But free stuff, the promise of free stuff, necessarily comes with more authoritarian control. So I mentioned before that I would kind of end with why do socialism and capitalism function differently? Socialism requires that somebody's in charge, that they make uh, resource allocation decisions, and you have to fall in line. So socialism necessarily requires force and coercion, and lots of it, right? Rather, in capitalism, Resource allocation is decentralized and it's mitigated by prices and property rights and profits and losses. And so one of the things we talked about is that market economies are much more agile. They can adjust and adapt and they can discover. So the human endeavor is to discover new and better ways to do things, which makes us more prosperous in every dimension of that word. And so I think what we need to leave with is, you know, are we becoming more radical? I think some people might be. I think our expectations about what government can do for us are out of line with reality. And I think that's true on both the right and the left. I think we need to return to the principles of economics and say, why have we so long advocated for a free market society? It's not about ideology. It's about what we're after, which is human flourishing and human well-being. And we, you just look at Venezuela, the news reports that come out every day, more immiseration more inflation to try to pay for all of these promises that have bankrupted people because there is no such thing as a free lunch. So democratic socialism, I think is a very dangerous idea because it's not possible. It's not possible because when the government steps in to engineer the allocation of economic resources, they necessarily have to use force. So you can slap the word democratic in front of it, but what's going to happen as soon as those in power start to lose control is they'll throw away the rule of law, they'll throw away the democratic institutions, and they'll use more force. And every longstanding social experiment that any country has experimented with central economic planning has always resulted in more authoritarianism. I would say it's a feature, not a bug. So we shouldn't be surprised. And we don't want 
to get on what Hayek would call the road to serfdom here, right? We don't want to be on that road to serfdom. If we are on it, we want to get off of the road to serfdom. Uh, so I think we need to be very vigilant about these ideas. I think we need to use terms with meaning. I think we use the word socialist and capitalist as kind of almost slurs when we're in debates with people. I think we need to return civility to these debates and speak on the truths of economics. And I think that's how we're going to uh, get, you know, get on the other side of this and get a return uh, to freedom and to the spread of economic freedom around the world. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, and hopefully there's there's questions. I'm happy to field them if there are. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, we do have a couple questions coming in. The first one um, from Kurt Kloon. Government regulations attempts to address externalities. What is the place for, for social net in a market economy? Okay, so can you repeat the last part? Government regulations attempt to correct externalities. I didn't, you broke up on the last part a little bit. Um, what is the place for social net in a market economy? Okay, so a social safety net, right? Okay, so I think those are kind of two different questions. Um, the first question is about what, what is the purpose of government regulations? I would say government regulations sometimes are about correcting externalities, but I don't think they're all the time about correcting externalities. And if you go through and read the Federal Register, you see that there's a lot of regulations that have come about um, in the past 30, 40 years that are really um, legislated for by insiders trying to protect themselves from the competition of new innovators and new competition. So it's often done under the guise of public safety or under the guise of externalities. But I actually think if you peel the onion and kind of look through that federal register, you'll see that um, in many cases, it's not a, about a true externality problem, although sometimes it is. Um, and so, you know, the question I think is always, what's the best mechanism to regulate? So let's just give a very simple example, um, the FDA, right? What is the FDA there to do? Um, you don't want to ingest a drug into your body without that drug being thoroughly tested in some capacity, right? So the FDA is kind of an attempt at an institution that, um, that does that for you. It makes sure that these companies are going through the process uh, to make these drugs safe, right? But I think the problem is that they make, you know, safe at what cost is the real question. It takes about 25 years for a drug from its idea phase to get onto the market. So 25 years and millions and millions of dollars, yes, maybe that's an attempt to make us safer and to reduce externalities in terms of medicine. But I think what it's actually done is made it so expensive to innovate and kind of it's made pharmaceutical corporations a boutique industry. And of course, the people who exist in that industry now don't want up-and-comers you know, competing against them. But I think it's actually created almost a monopolistic type of environment. So that's just one example. The second part of your question, I think, is about the social safety net. What is the role for the government in providing for a social safety net? And you know, I think uh, my answer to this based on economics is that oh, you know, local is always better. And the reason that local is always better is because knowledge is decentralized. So what's, what Baltimore needs is different than what Chicago needs, which is different than what LA needs, which is what different than what you know, a rural town in Arkansas needs. And so you, you know, this is known in um, Catholic theology as the subsidiarity principle, right? So we help those who are closest to us because we're better able, we're better agile to do that. So it's not that I would be against a social safety net. The question is, is the federal government in most cases the institution that is going to best and most effectively provide it? I would say no. And I would say if, if you look at pre-1913, the social safety net was entirely privately provided through civic organizations. You know, what Tocqueville saw was this vibrant 
civil society full of these institutions that people formed in their communities because they saw problems and they wanted to solve them. So I would say, you know, if the state's going to be involved, local is is far better where we can where we can keep it to that. But I think civil society and even uh, businesses can do a lot to pro- to you know provide a safety net for people in times of need. That was a great question. Thank you. Another question here from um, Kit McGuire. You mentioned coming up with a counter narrative through solid logical arguments in economics. However, Zig Ziglar, the renowned salesman, said logic makes people think, but emotion makes people act. Socialists frame their narrative around emotional issues. How do we frame the economic counter narrative to be emotionally evocative? Yes. Yep. Hi. Um, Such a good question. And I think that this is something we have to work out. We We have to work out. We have to be winsome. We have to be compelling. And I think people on the right in general, whatever that means, we can have another webinar on what that means, but in general, people on the right kind of lead with numbers and data. And if you start spewing data at people, they're asleep. They don't care. Um, Nobody cares about GDP growth. I mean, right, this doesn't seem like it's part of our daily lives, but we do care about, am I going to have a job? You know, um, where am I going to, how am I going to pay to feed my family? We care about those things. So I think we need to be more winsome. And here's what I think. And, and, Um, I try to do this in my own teaching and in my own writing. Economics is at its core a humanitarian pursuit. This is not Washington DC water cooler talk. If we go down the road of democratic socialism, we will make the marginalized worse off. And the elites, they'll do just fine because they'll be running the system until they run out of money, of course, too. Uh, but this is a humanitarian endeavor, and we need to approach it as such. So every paper, every tweet, every op-ed, every conversation needs to lead with the reason I'm advocating for a market-based economy is because I care for the poor. I care for people who have been marginalized. I care for people who have been sidestepped by the system, rather than pretending they're not there, or pretending it's a small problem, or whatever. And so compassion and really, gotta, it's got to be in your heart before it's in your head. Um, and so I think numbers are just, you know, no, they don't compel anybody to do anything, unfortunately. Um, I think we have to lead with, this is a life-saving, life-altering course we are on. We have to choose wisely. And I think if we can do that, and I think, again, Kip, if we speak to people with whom we disagree with respect, I've always said, I, you know, I'm not important, so Bernie Sanders would never have a coffee meeting with me, but I would love to, to have one with him because I actually agree with him on a lot. I care about the poor. I don't think we should have a cronious system. If I could have a conversation with him and rather than shove numbers in his face, say, here's where we agree. Let's go from there to start the conversation. That's much more of a conversation starter rather than an ender, right? So I think we need to approach everybody with that um, tactic, right? That, you know, we, we want to engage in dialogue to get to the right answers. Also a good question. We have a, another question here from Carrie Gray. Expanding on the inner city underprivileged mom example or eliminating student loans example, can you provide an equally specific example of the trade-offs by the counterpart, i.e. a middle-class mom or middle-class individual's income to support a base income of the underprivileged or the elimination of student loans? If we build up the lower class by taking away from the middle and upper class, what happens to the latter two? Okay, that's a good question, a complex question. I'll do my best. I, I think 
the last part of your question, I think you're on to, you know, part of the problem, which is we can't, you know, the famous saying, you don't rob Peter to pay Paul because, you know, you're not creating wealth. So I think the, the, the underlying problem is that if we redistribute income, and if, so of course, you know, back to kind of something I said earlier, when Bernie Sanders says, be more like Denmark, um, I don't think he wants to kind of bring back Lenin and, and bring back the gulag. I think what he wants to do is engage in a lot more redistribution. So he needs to use his words wisely. That's like one point I would say here. But, you know, the question is, how big can the government get, right? Because I think an essential, again, point of economics is this. The government can only gain income or revenue by taxing, by borrowing, by inflating. That's it. So it's not like Bill Gates, who develops this, you know, kind of huge business venture, makes a lot of money, and then invests some of his profits um, philanthropically across the world. Great, right? It took, he had to engage in market activity to have that kind of a surplus to engage in charity. That's wealth creation, right? But when you're taxing, and I think that's part of what you were saying at the end, when, when you tax the middle class more, or if you tax the wealthy more and you redistribute, you're not changing the institutional problem. So it's just like, you know, if you've got a gushing wound and you just keep putting another Band-Aid on it and keep putting another Band-Aid on it, you just keep needing Band-Aids, right? So you've somehow got to stop the problem where it's starting. We don't just want to deal with the symptoms. We want to deal with the source. And so I think redistribution does not effectively deal with the source of the problem. I think we can really reshape our economy by thinking about two, two of the most important pillars of economic freedom, property rights and the protection thereof and the regulatory environment. What I'm seeing is, here's one example, which you, know, you asked for something specific, so hopefully this is helpful. Um, what we're seeing is an increase in what we call occupational licensing in the United States which means that many more jobs now, just to have the job, you have to have a license. And sometimes this means going to school or um, doing coursework or investing in the process of getting a license. And I think the problem is that kind of cuts the economic ladder. You're not kind of cutting the rungs off the bottom of the ladder. And so this is harmful for people in the middle class and lower middle class and lowest income quintile because um, you know, if you don't need a lot of capital, but now we're making you run around and get a license and get all this training to do something, um, you know, you might just not be able to have that business. So what we need to think about is how to help people become more productive. Productivity in a market economy is accompanied by income growth. So what people who find themselves persistently in poverty, in the bottom of the income quintile, what we need to think about are educational opportunities, both primary and secondary, and um, thinking about how we can help enhance their productivity. One last thing, it was a big question, so I wanna to try to address it all, but I'm sure there's more questions. I think that this myth that everybody needs to go to college is actually part of the problem. So I think we need to reshape our cultural expectations around that. I'm not sure that student loan forgiveness is gonna change that incentive. Uh, it's probably just gonna make more people chase college. But for example, if you wanna become a plumber, if you want to do, um, you know, an elevator lift operator, by the way, I looked that up the other day, it's like $165,000 per year annual salary. It doesn't necessarily require that you go to college, but when, when the expectation is you can't succeed unless you go to college, what we've seen now is the highest college dropout rate ever. So one third of college students drop out. 
And so that that's actually a really expensive thing to have to go and drop out. It's better not to go at all. So I think we need to reshape our cultural expectations rather than just kind of forgive student loan. I think we need to align the incentives and then find a way to induce competition into schools, both primary and secondary, to make them better and cheaper. Good question. Another question. Um, you mentioned that a large middle class shows that there is good income mobility in the economy. How is it that income mobility preserved when the higher income groups grow more than the middle class, especially for lower income groups? So, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a good question, which is how much is too much, right? Um, and here's where I think that the income inequality debate gets a little bit um, confused or muddled. There is a big difference between income inequality and poverty. And I would tell you that I'm not really worried about income inequality when there's not cronyism. Because when there's not cronyism, right, you don't get to pay to play, you don't get to change the rules of the game, but rather you had to come up with something that a lot of people wanted, whether it was a, you know, an operating system on a computer or a vaccine or the pacemaker, whatever it may be. You came up with something lots of people wanted you wanted and they rewarded you with profit. That's what we want to see. And that's going to lead to some income inequality. I don't think income inequality is necessarily a big problem outside of cronyism. Uh, so I think poverty is a problem, right? So we need to separate those two things and say, wh what is the policy problem and what is the policy solution? Um, and Or it, maybe it's not even a policy problem. What's the institutional problem? What's the institutional solution? So I think there's two different things going on there. Um, I'm really not worried about the growth of income what I'm worried about is the growth of income through cronyism, because I think that's exclusionary, right? I think that protects people and insulates people who can play the game. So, you know, I think my quest would be, how do we undo, how do we divorce, um, you know, politics from income and from, uh, from monetary influence? Very, of course, very difficult thing to do. Um, but I think we need to take poverty as, as, as its own issue that doesn't necessarily have to do with income inequality. So think about this. You could have a society where no one is poor. And how would you measure that? You know, people get, list out whatever the basic needs are. Everybody has that and then some. Add whatever cushioning you want. You could say there's no poverty in this society, but there's inequality. But what we really care about, and that was my point about that graph with middle income, um, you want people who start at the bottom to move out of the bottom. Right. So I think that's why we want to see people having a lot of income mobility through a society. Let me give you an example. When I was 15, my first job, you guys will like this. One of my first jobs was working at George Washington's house, Mount Vernon in the gift shop. So I was like, you know, 15 is like me and retired ladies. And I sold lots of George Washington tchotchkes, you know, and I think about that. And I'm so grateful that somebody gave a 15 year old who had, didn't know anything that opportunity because I handled cash, I had to talk to customers, I had to be trusted by my boss. But I mean minimum wage, right? I mean minimum wage, I was at the bottom of the income distribution. Now it doesn't matter as much because I was using that money to buy jeans my parents wouldn't buy me. I wasn't helping my parents pay the rent. But if you are in that situation, right? If you're going back to the, you know, the mom taking care of four kids, those four kids might be helping her pay her rent. And so we don't want to exclude them from those opportunities by raising the minimum wage, which tends to lead to unemployment among the most inexperienced. And so, you know, I think separating the income inequality and the poverty issues are really important so that we can take those policies separately and say, you know, 
Is there an inequality problem? Okay, let's deal with that on its own. And is there a poverty problem? And let's deal with that separately. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Um, this question is from Nathan Fiala. He goes, thank you, Professor Bradley. You're one of my favorite professors while I was at IWP. To the question in Hayek's Road to Serfdom, he claims that protectionism is the first step towards collectivism, which can lead eventually to authoritarianism. Can you speak a little to that relationship? And is there a place for protectionism in US trade policy? Ooh, that's a doozy. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, I'll try to answer this. This is, I think this is going to be the debate going forward, by the way. After kind of living through a pandemic, I think we're going to reevaluate our trade policy. And I'm worried that we're going to move more in the direction of protectionism. I think it's a mistake. Um, and I think it's a mistake because we can't, we need, you know, we live in a global economy. Um, and that makes life cheaper and more affordable for all of us. And so we need to find a way to accommodate, of course, with our current situation. Things are going to change, but you don't want to go totally inward. So Hayek's point is that protectionism, again, it's kind of Hayek and Smith are in the same vein here. Smith was worried about protectionism. What Smith was worried about, it's so funny because he, was, he loved entrepreneurship, but he was worried about business interests because he knew what business owners would try to do, which is to coddle the state, right? To engage in protectionism and so that they would be kind of favored. And so they would grow rich and you, you limit imports um, and all these kinds of things, right? And Smith understood that that would ultimately really uh, lead to more poverty rather than more wealth. Um, and so, per, you know, what Hayek is saying there is protectionism is just a step in the road to collectivism because again, what does it do? It, it, it implies that the state has the ability to know who should produce what. And I go, that's such a great question, Nathan, because it takes us back to where we started. The economy is not an engineering project. It's just not. Um, there are lots of things that are engineering projects, right? We can design buildings, we can design bridges, we can write down a plan, we can implement the plan and we can make it happen. But the economy is about people and, and it's about complex phenomena and the only way that, as you know from reading Hayek, he was you know, excited about prices, not because he was some sort of right winger, because he knew that prices uh, were the best mechanism to share and collect knowledge and transmit that knowledge across a society. So that's, that's why he says that. He says, look, protectionism, when you go as a large company or a small company and you go to the government and say, protect me from X, Y, or Z competitor, you know, you're going to alter the natural order of trade. And so it presumes that the government is in a position to know how to redirect the puzzle pieces. Um, and that's, of course, based on assuming that the economy is a puzzle. Remember, what's, what is a puzzle? It's something that has, somebody has already thought out ahead of time and prefabricated the pieces. And when you're doing a puzzle, all you're doing is putting together the pieces. But that's not what we're doing. So that's, that's really what he's saying here. Protectionism allows this relationship of cronyism to develop between business interests and the state. And it's kind of a step towards the path of collectivism because in a totally collectivized economy, what's gonna happen? You're gonna have bureaucrats and technocrats and they're gonna have to dispense with this, you know, supposedly, you know, um, <laughs> holy knowledge of who's gonna do what, when, where, and how much. And I think what Hayek is reacting to is saying, you're getting on the road to collectivism, and that, of course, always, always, always leads to authoritarianism. So, you know, as what are my fears in the future? I think some of my fears are that we're going to revert back to too much protectionism, 
And again, you know, I think that's not going to lead to prosperity, and it's certainly not going to solve our problems um, that this pandemic has imposed upon us or what any other crisis in the future will impose upon us. Uh, we have to figure out how to live in a globalized world. That's not an easy thing to do, but I don't think the answer is going back on 40 years of global openness and, and integrated trade policy. Okay, great. I think that's all the time that we have. So I apologize for those who we couldn't get to their questions. Um, I would just like to thank Dr. Bradley for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, Dr. Bradley. Thank you. And if anybody who didn't get to ask a question, they know my email. So you can email me and I'm happy to engage with your question. Thanks so much for having me guys. This Thank you. Fun.